Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. God, would you speak through Ryan? Um, would you um, just let the spirit be here with us this morning? We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Patrick. We're starting a new series of messages we're going to be working our way through some of the most well-known passages of Scripture, most familiar, I don't know if they're well-known, the most familiar passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. And, and the way that we want to do this is we want to look at the law and the gospel and how Jesus fulfills the law of God, but also how the law has demands upon our lives and how we live out the righteous life in Christ. And so we, we want to take a fresh look at this. And in order to do this well, uh, we need to take a couple weeks to get set up before we start going through the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so this week we're going to be looking at the context of when the Ten Commandments were given to God's people and why that matters so much to understanding them. Next week we're going to be looking at the, the uses of the law and how Christians are to view the law of God. And so it's going to be great getting into that together. So as we, if we kind of get set up here and, and look at today this context, I'm, I want to share just a, something that God has shown me this week through a very unusual set of circumstances. So we've got a problem at the Johnson house, and it's this, we've got rabbits. <laughs> and if you know anything about rabbits, here's what you know, you never just have one rabbit. I, I was reading on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is always right, the rabbits can multiply themselves 60 times over in a year. <laughs> the problem is, is that we didn't plan to have rabbits, all right? So we've got them, and, and there's not much we can, we can do about it now. So I start, we started out, you know, with the rabbit situation, with this big, fluffy, white and gray rabbit masquerading through our yard at random times of the day. And, and I would look at it, and, uh, you know, we, I told you all several years ago about the the the, the possums that had rabies that we had to deal with. I mean, we have a zoo in our yard. I'm not kidding. But the rabbit, he just, you know, masquerades around. And, and I, the kids are like, you know, they're like, they want, they want to bring him in the house, you know. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's stick with the fish and the hermit crab. We're in good shape there. 
but 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 he, he's kind of meandering around like he's lost and he's he's going about in the yard and uh and they're trying to get food out and feed him and and i don't really want anything to do with him so i've got a broomstick kind of push he's trying to get in our garage trying to push him out he starts he starts getting closer and closer to the house he starts living under the car at night and you're like god this is not good i know how this is going to end up and then on tuesday of this week the rabbit broke me i was out mowing the yard I kid you not, I'm pushing, I'm in my zone. Anybody else get in your zone when you're mowing the yard? You got your headphones and your music. Mowing the yard, all of a sudden the rabbit jumps out and he starts hopping next to me. And, and my first thought was, okay, here's an easy out. But then, then, <laughs> <laughs> then, then, I, then I, you know, I, I think I repent, of course, and I keep mowing. But he keeps, he starts hopping alongside me, mowing the yard. This happened for about five minutes. He's following me back and forth, just hopping alongside of me. And all of a sudden, like, the rabbit's endearing. I'm like, I like this rabbit. He's, he's, this, this rabbit, is, he, can, he can stay around. And so finish mowing the yard, and I'm open up the fridge and pull out a bag of carrots. And I tell Caden, go get him a carrot and see what he does. And they, they're out there feeding him out of their hand. And anyway, I let the kids name them, and they affectionately call them something very original, Peter. Anyway, the reason why I share that with you is that I think a lot of times we look at the law of God without a relationship with God. We, 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 we are tempted to look at the law of God, which is the, the character and attributes and demands of the holiness of God without a relationship with God, and they are only an indictment against us when we look at them that way. They're not a comfort, they're not a source of love for us. And, 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 and when you think about the Ten Commandments, that's most certainly what you think about. The interesting thing is, is that in the prologue that we're looking at today, the first two verses of Exodus, what it shows us is God's relationship with His people. That relationship that He has with His people, everything else that He says in the Ten Commandments hinges on that relationship. And what we see is this is that the law of God is actually about love. And that's our big idea today, that the law is about love. And so what I want to do is just, just kind of journey through some, a brief history of the people of God, starting in the book of Genesis. So if you've got a, a Bible, you can, you can flip open to Genesis chapter 12, and, and we'll dig in there. My first point is this, is God's motivation for relationship with us is love. So we can't understand God's law unless we know the context of it. And, and, and what we see about Adam and Eve in the garden, this is in Genesis you know, 2 and 3, uh, is that, that they fall into sin essentially because they forget that they're loved. And we've been perpetuating that ever since then. The times that you fall into sin, the times that you get trapped, it wasn't, it wasn't because of you know, this circumstance or that circumstance, it was because you forgot in your inner person that you were loved by God and that His ways are the best ways for your life. This is, this is, there's not a more obvious case of this than in parenting children, right? You're trying to, you know, tell them not to play in traffic and all they want to do is run out in the road. And, and we do this over and over and over again and we find more sophisticated ways to run from God's love as we get older. But what we see here is that Adam and Eve run from God, they run from God's love, from God's care, from His command to them to protect them, and they fall into sin. And it doesn't take long for that sin to be rampant and imputed to all of creation. I mean, look at Genesis chapter 4. Two brothers, Adam and Eve's children, what do they do? One of them kills the other one. 
This is four chapters in. It's getting pretty bad. You get in 12 chapters in, there's idolatry, there's a flood, there's all kinds of stuff that's happened. The one thing that we see is that sin runs rampant, and it's because we fail to understand the love of God. But then there's this moment where this man, he was as big a sinner as any of us in the room, maybe more so, is in the land of earth. And his name is Abram. And God meets him in the middle of his sin with his reckless love, if we could call it that. This, this love that is so powerful and so irresistible. He meets him in the middle of that. And here's what Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 2 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. In other words, give up everything and follow me, Abram. All of the security, all of the inheritance, all of the comfort, give it all up and follow a better path for your life, he says. He says, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, God's got plans for Abram's life, but it's contingent upon him obeying God and hearing him and listening to him. Why do we always go back to Abraham, you might say? Did you know that Abraham is not only one of the central characters of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament? You can't read very far in the New Testament without finding something about Abraham. Because this is the most specific instance that we see of God initiating a relationship with sinful people and making it completely contingent upon his own love. So initially, Abram doesn't belong to God. He's from this foreign land. He's caught up in sin. And even when God does call him and he responds, they end up going into Egypt and he, he tries to lie to the Pharaoh to tell him that his wife is actually his sister so he doesn't get killed. And so he's a little shaky with trusting God, you see? It's not perfect. It's not cut and dry. And following Jesus never is. We want it to be an instantaneous change and we're surprised when it's a process, right? It's the same way with Abraham. And I, you know, I was reading this fantastic memoir this week. Megan and I have been reading it by, by Brennan Manning. And, and the, the quote that kind of shapes his life and his ministry is this. And I just want to share it with you here. It says, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Because nobody is as they should be. Think about that for your own life as we think about Abram and God's call on his life. Guess we're getting a new mic, guys. All right. All right. So, Brendan Manning, anyway, great memoir, great book. But that's the truth about that's the truth about the gospel, that God meets us in the middle of our sin. He always and has only been doing that. And you see that the covenant promise from Genesis chapter 12 is contingent upon what God is going to do for Abram. Not what Abram is going to do for God. He has to respond to that love, but it's really God initiating everything. So in Genesis 17, we see that promise begin to unfold a little bit more about his relationship with Abram, his relationship with humanity. And we pick up in verse 1, he says this, when Abram was 99 years old, okay guys, that's 24 years after Genesis 12, 24 years, Abram is kind of wondering about with this promise and doesn't have all the clarity that he needs, certainly doesn't have the promise of a child, which would be the beginning of a great nation coming from his lineage, right? 24 years after this, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, 
and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant, my promise is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now keep in mind, he still doesn't have a kid, and he's 99. Okay, keep that in mind. Keep that in frame. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Ha ha, yeah, right, God. My wife is 90. I'm, 90, I'm 99. How's this going to happen? He says, I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant, my promise, my relationship between me and you and your offspring and throughout their generations. Get this right here, underline it, for an everlasting covenant. How long? Everlasting covenant. So a covenant that ends when Moses comes? No. An everlasting covenant. This covenant matters to us because it's an everlasting covenant. This covenant is our covenant. It's not just Abraham's covenant. It's not just the people of Israel's covenant. It's not just the 12 tribes covenant. It is our covenant. It is our promise that we cling to. It's our story. And he says this everlasting covenant is this, to be to you and to your offspring after you, to be God to you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of the sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Because remember, Abram had left all of the land and was wandering for 24 years up until this point. For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So what an amazing promise that you see that God extends to Abram. And I'd love to tell you that we could, we could wrap up the show and roll the credits at that point. But you and I know that the history of God's people is rocky and disjointed and mysterious, just like your story is. But the one thing that remains, the one thing that stays solid the entire time is God's promise to be a loving, covenant-keeping God on their behalf. That is the thing that holds every piece of the narrative of Scripture together and every piece of your life together. And that's why we've been singing about it this morning. Because it's the one thing that everything else hinges on. Do you know that love this morning? Do you know it? Is it yours? Is it your possession? Is that promise that God made to Abraham your promise? Or is God distant like the Ten Commandments seem to us without a relationship? Second thing we see is this, is that God's motivation for our redemption is love. So as we, as we play out this narrative of the scriptures and God's people and the winding road that it is, toward the tail end of the book of Genesis and, and into the book of Exodus, Israel finds herself through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of these guys. They, they, we, we, we find ourselves in this place where we're now in Egypt again, but this time it's slavery in Egypt, initially because of a famine, you know, the brothers of Joseph, you know, sold him into Egyptian slavery. That's how they got there. But then the famine comes, and then everybody comes there for food. And, uh, and at this point, the people of God um, experience favor because of Joseph's relationship with God. God gives them favor there, but then the Pharaoh dies, Joseph dies, and things get really bad. And, and over the course of of about 400 years, the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. So what was the promise of God? What was that everlasting covenant? To make them a great nation, to give them a place to call home because Abram had left home. Very little evidence of that promise in Egypt other than the fact that 
they are multiplying, and the, 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 the nation of Israel is growing within bondage in Egypt. And then there's this, there's this flicker of hope in Exodus chapter 2. I'll read it to you. During those many days, the kingdom, king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. In other words, they desperately prayed. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Susan, with Ryan, with Megan, with Tony, with Brandon, with all of us. He remembered it. He remembered it. And what did he do? He remembered the covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew them because he made them and he created them. So Israel finally reaches this point of desperation. They were so desperate that they actually began to pray. And we've said this at New City. You want to wonder why your prayer life is no good? It's because you're not desperate enough. And so God in his kindness, what he'll do if you ask him for a prayer life, is he'll make you desperate. And and I can't promise you what that's going to look like, but he'll make you desperate. He's that good. (laughs) He'll make us desperate so that we'll seek his face because if we're not desperate, we won't seek his face. We'll seek our things. We'll seek ourselves. We'll seek our job. We'll seek anything other than his face. But when God makes us desperate, it is an opportunity to turn to him. And when we turn to him, he remembers his promise with us. And we see that happening even in Egypt. And so there may be a figurative Egypt in your life that you're in right now. You can turn to him and seek his face and he will hear you because you are his if you're in Christ. You belong to him. And I don't care where you've come from today or what you've been into or what your week looked like or this year or this season, if you're breathing, you can turn to him. And the promise is this, is that he'll hear you if you turn to him in faith. Thirdly, we're going to get into the law here in a second, I promise. God's love is expressed through the law. So picture this. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They turn to him desperately. He hears their prayer. How do you think he hears their prayer? Do you think he just says, okay, guys, yeah, I'm still here. I still love you. No, he does something about their slavery, their bondage. He saves them from it, and how he does it is absolutely amazing. Through a series of plagues that you can read about in the first 14 chapters of Egypt, God begins to deliver his people over and over and over again until it gets to this final plague where it's the death of the firstborn child. And God uh, instructs Israel to, to put some blood on their doorposts that he might pass over their houses and redeem them. And the Pharaoh gets so fed up with God's judgment on them that he says, let them go. Just get out of here. And they get out. Overnight, they get, they get out, and, and this is the reason why the Passover feast, the bread, is unleavened, because they didn't have time for the bread to leaven. And they look back and they celebrate that, and the way that God delivers them is he takes them through the Red Sea. He takes them through the Red Sea to get into, the, like, toward the promised land. And as they go through the Red Sea, God's judgment then consumes the Egyptians as they try to cross by behind them. He saves them miraculously because he heard their cry, because he remembered his promise that he made with Abraham and me and you. And he heard their prayer. And then he brings them, here's where we get into the law. He brings them to Mount Sinai after they get through the Red Sea. Brings them to Mount Sinai and he meets them there. The chaos has settled down a little bit. They're still living in tents. They're still trying to figure out who they are. But think about this. They really haven't heard from God for 400 years. 
generation after generation after generation didn't know God's word, God's voice, and so God meets them in the midst of their struggle, of their lostness, and he's patient with them. And here's what Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 says this. This is the preface to the Ten Commandments. He says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God commands anything from Israel, he says, because I am, you shall. Because I am God, because I am pure, you shall be able to live like that. You will have power to do that as you seek my face. And this, this verse is so important to our interpretation of the Ten Commandments because any other way of reading it, we turn God's law up like a ladder and try to climb it. And we think that's the way to God. Maybe if I could just climb a little, a few uh, higher rungs than my neighbor, then maybe I'll be safe. God never intended for the Ten Commandments to be a way for us to be saved. It wasn't a way for Israel to be saved, clearly, because he had already saved them. He would already delivered them. It's not a way for us to be saved. In fact, the Scriptures say that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the law will never make you righteous. It will only show how unrighteous you are. But we live in a day and an age that says the law of God doesn't matter. It has no binding effect on my life. I don't need it in my life. I don't need the Older Testament. I don't need the promises of God that belong to me from the, the lineage and the promise of Abraham. And I'm here to tell you that they matter so much because without the law of God, without the promise of Abraham, you and I don't get Jesus Christ. Do you see that? you see how crucial it is to our understanding of the Scripture? And so he gives us the law that we'll be studying over the next 11 weeks, and he wants us to see his heart and his character. He wants us to see how to have a right relationship with him and then how to have a right relationship with others. One of the things you'll notice about the Ten Commandments is the first four are all about a vertical relationship with God. They're all about seeking his face. They're all about not having other gods before him. They're all about the right rhythms and the right way to speak about our God. It's all about getting us in alignment with him so that we can be in alignment with one another. Now today, culturally, we would rather be in alignment with one another if we could instead of being in alignment with God. But here's the beauty, the great command that, that Jesus gives in the Scriptures. He says you can sum up the whole law like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Give him everything that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you sum up the whole thing. And it all starts with the right relationship with God. Just after God delivers these Ten Commandments, or in the Hebrew, Ten Words, to his people, he gives them a little context for why he's done what he's just done. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Now, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord, listen to this, set his love on you and chose you. For you in fact, you were the fewest of all the people. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to who? Your fathers. That everlasting promise that he's remembering. That Abrahamic promise. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God 
is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. Church, we are part of those thousands of generations that God has been keeping his covenant promise with us. God wants to remind his people of their identity. And it's this, that you are holy and treasured because you are loved by God. There is nothing else that makes you lovely to God other than the fact that he has set his love on you. So it doesn't matter what you were into last night or even where your mind's going this morning. If you are in Christ Jesus, God chose you and loved you before the foundation of the earth. And your faith journey started way before you thought it did. It started thousands of years ago with a covenant-keeping God who chose you in eternity past and began to set his love upon his people. And that story, that gospel has been passed down to us from generation to generation to generation as we see the faithfulness of God lived out in our lives. And that's what the whole law of God is all about, is reminding us about the faithfulness of God. I want to close with this last point here about talking about how God's love is applied through Jesus. So what does Jesus have to do with the law, right? Because everything's about Jesus. Everything points to him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He's fulfilled the law. So what does this mean for us? If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 23 and, and work our way through a little bit here. Our salvation doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes on the shoulders of of those who've had faith before this. That's how God has set this whole thing up. And that's why church is so important for us to focus on the progression of the gospel through families. Because the gospel came to me and it came to you through somebody's family, through somebody's lineage, through somebody's heritage that they passed down the truths of Jesus Christ to someone else that descended from them. And that's the same way that it happens with us. Your life in Jesus might have come through your parents, some of you. Your life in Jesus might have come through some kids on your basketball team like it did for me. Your life in Jesus may have come through a close friend or a stranger on the beach. But one thing is true. The law was given for all of us who would be saved by Jesus. And it's always been meant to drive us to Jesus Christ. The law of God was never meant to be an agent of redemption for Israel or for us, but to drive us to Jesus. Listen, Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. This is what Patrick was speaking about earlier, how the law condemned his soul because he realized he could never get to God. He was thinking of the law in the wrong way. He was thinking of it as an access point to get to God. It's never given to us for that. It was given to drive us, to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian, literally in the Greek is, is a teacher or a guide, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, meaning this, we're, we're not held captive by the law anymore. It doesn't mean that the law is useless. It, it, it means that we're no longer held captive because Jesus Christ has been revealed, the one who fulfilled the law. It says this, for, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
key verse right here. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is one of the most key verses in my own personal story of understanding how the Old Testament fits into my life in Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying here, is that if, if you belong to Jesus Christ through faith, many of you in this room do. Some of you are not yet there, but we, we're praying for you. We hope that you're there. We hope that you get there, that you'll trust him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are as Jewish as they come. Culturally, no. Spiritually, yes. You have a circumcised heart. The promises of God belong to you. Because you're Christ, and Christ was the whole purpose and meaning of God setting apart a people. He's the the perfect manifestation of it in his flesh when he came to us. If you belong to Jesus, you're as spiritually Jewish as they come, and those promises are for you. He will be our God, and we will be his people because Jesus will do the work. I was preaching a uh, a youth uh, retreat or something like that in Bowling Green, Kentucky about 10 years ago, and you know, I was preaching in the Old Testament, I guess more than these guys were used to, and, and uh, a youth leader came up to me afterwards, and he goes, he goes, man, don't you think you're kind of wasting your sessions a little bit being in the Old Testament? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, what do, you, what do you think I should do? And he said, man, you should go to the red letters. Those are the actual, those are the actual words of Jesus. Why wouldn't you go there, man? And I said, hey, bro, guess what? They're all red letters. <laughs> Isn't that the truth for us, though? They're all red You might have a Bible that has the red letters. That's fine. I'm not judging you right now anyway, maybe later. But they're all red letters because all of those promises, you know, were were written and carried along by chosen men and carried about by the Holy Spirit. They came from Jesus. They're about Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. Luke 24 says that Jesus explained the Scriptures, the law, to those men on the road to Emmaus and how they all related to him. They were all concerning him. It all points to Jesus. And your story, your spiritual journey is far longer and deeper and stronger than you have. You have no idea how deep it is, how long it is, how strong it is. That's the promise for us. The law came to show Israel who God was. And as they spent those 400 years in bondage, they needed to see God. They needed to see him fresh. And most importantly, they needed to see that they could never be their own God. So God gives them the law, those promises. And, and here's what we see about what Jesus does when he fulfills the law and how that affects us. Read these last seven verses here in Galatians 4, 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, his son that was born of a woman, that was born under the law. Key phrase right there. He had to be born under the law. Why did Jesus Christ have to be born under the law? To redeem those under the law. Because the law was still doing its thing still condemning, still convicting. Jesus had to be born under the law so that we could place our faith in him, the one who keeps the law on our behalf, the one that obeys God perfectly on our behalf so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit 
the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, crying, Daddy. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So what the scripture teaches us is the whole reason that God sent Jesus was so that we could be children of God. That we could go back to that, that perfect unity that was in the garden. When Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God, when there was no sin that separated them, the whole purpose of God sending Jesus is so that we might be once again convinced of the love of God. And the story of the scriptures is a sweeping narrative convincing us and showing us the, the one-way love of God that is pursuing lost children. And he does that over and over and over again. Because here's what happens. The law demands, but the gospel supplies. We need the demands of the law, church, to see that Jesus Christ is our way out. If we don't have no law, we got no gospel. Or you got weak law, you got weak gospel. And you all of a sudden think that it's up to you instead of God. Because what happens when we diminish what God demands upon our life, we don't think we need a Savior. And so Jesus, what we'll see as we look at the Ten Commandments, we'll, take, we'll flip it over to the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see that Jesus takes this from a physical sin of, of, of acting out in disobedience to spiritual positions of our hearts and saying that's exactly the same. In fact, there's a guy in the church here that has the Ten Commandments up in his office, and, and I was asking about it as I was uh, meeting with him, and he was telling me a story about one of the clients that had come in to visit him, and, and uh, they, were, they were inquiring about the Ten Commandments, and, and he kind of caught him by surprise because he says, you know, <laughs> I've broken all of those commands, right? And, uh, you know, your mind immediately goes to which one? Murderer? You're like, all of a sudden, you're like, man, I'm in the room with a murderer right now. Your mind automatically goes there because that seems like the worst one, I guess. But, uh, but that's the truth, is that once we understand who Jesus is, and we understand how good his grace is, we're not afraid of the, the conviction that sin brings because we know that it, it doesn't include condemnation. Amen? When you see your sin and you know you're loved by God through the work of Jesus Christ who raised from the dead, the, the, the fear that we have in death and conviction and condemnation is gone. It's lost its sting. There's only hope uh, in Jesus. I love what Martin Luther says, and I'll, I'll just close with this. The law is for the proud and the gospel for the brokenhearted. And my prayer for us in this series, church, is that we would be brokenhearted people. We let the law break us down, but we see our risen and reigning Savior, Jesus Christ, and we treasure him all the more. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for just meeting us today, meeting us through the word, showing us the story, the narrative, the history of how the law is really all about love. It's about your one-way pursuit of lost and wrapped up sinners in this life. Lord, I can't help but think about some folks in this room who might be in the mystery right now, who might not understand life, who might not understand what you're doing and and how you might meet them. But God, I pray that they might see a place for even themselves in the family tree of Jesus. That our older brother has come for us. He's not left us. He's come for us with a love stronger than our sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive that afresh today. And that it would have life-changing impact uh, on the way that we, the way that we live in the way that we love in this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.